morning, I'd like you to turn to the book of Ezra, Ezra chapter 1. <laughs> and uh, no, I didn't make a mistake. I know we finished the book of Ezra last week. Nevertheless, the book of Ezra, as you noticed last week, ended so abruptly that it would be, I thought, appropriate and fitting to go back and to recap and to consider what all we have learned, what all we have witnessed in the book of Ezra as we looked at this historical narrative of the gracious hand of God working to renew His people and to reestablish His temple in Jerusalem. What I'm going to do this morning is I'm going to look at each one of those sermons. There was seven sermons that took us through the entire book of Ezra. Lord willing, next week we will begin the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah, Ezra, was one book in the Hebrew Bible. There are concerning the same time periods and dealing with almost the same issues. With Ezra, we see the rebuilding of the temple. And with Nehemiah, we will see the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. And so I'm looking forward to that. And you know where you can be reading for next week. So let me pray with you and then we'll dive in. Gracious God, our Father who is in heaven, we bow before you today because we are needy. We need you. We need your power. We need your forgiveness. We need your renewing grace this morning. Your reviving grace. Your restoring grace. And so, Father, we recognize with this group of people that we are sinners. And that we are prone to sin and to stray. And we are subject to temptations, trials, and difficulties in our lives. Weaknesses, imperfections. We are fallible. And no doubt each one that is here this morning brings with them into this room burdens. And so I would not be able to speak to them, Lord, in a way that would be powerful and fitting on my own. And so I ask and I hope that others will join with me in asking you to help me. To fill me with your spirit. And to more importantly, anoint your holy word in my heart. And in the hearts of those who are gathered here today. That we might forever be changed by the power of your Spirit as you work through your Word for your glory and for our good. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So the title is Spiritual Renewal at God's Appointed Time, and the reason being is because that's what the entire book is about. I added the phrase, the spiritual renewal at God's appointed time, because God had already promised when this would take place. He had foretold to the prophet Jeremiah that it would happen after a 70-year exile of the people of God in Babylon. So the people had sinned against God and God had warned them that if they did this kind of sin that he would bring judgment upon them and he would scatter them among the nations. They disregarded the warning and the promise of the judgment and they sinned against God and rebelled against his command and they were subsequently punished as it were. They were judged. They were chastised of the Lord. He carried them away by the Babylonians in 586 B.C., and they were there for 70 years in exile. But at God's appointed time, He began to move. And I want this this message today, as you can see the subtitle, Ezra, Summary and Application. So we're going to look at the book in summary fashion, and we want to think today about application. We want to think important It's very important. We want to think as we read and study any passage in God's Word, what are the clear implications of this text for my life today and for our church today? Because there are clear implications of all of the Word of God that should be applied to our lives personally and corporately. We are talking about God's relationship and interaction Between him and his covenant people, Israel. Today, you and I, if you are a Christian, you are a part of the new covenant people of God. The New Testament that was purchased and secured through the blood of Jesus Christ. And so if you're a part of the family of God, what we see in God's dealings with his covenant people in the Old Testament, we can certainly learn implications for his dealings with us today. As his covenant people, the church. The church today, in many ways, is like the people of Israel in Ezra's day. The people of Israel were scattered. The people of Israel were without, in many ways, the worship of God in the form of That he had instructed them in the word. They had no temple. Therefore the priests could not fulfill their role as priests. The Levites could not fulfill their role as Levites. As servants in the temple of the Lord. The people of God could not bring their sacrifices to the temple. As they had been instructed by God. For their sins. They could not celebrate the festivals that God had established. To remember His powerful hand in calling them and forming them and delivering them throughout the years in the past. And in many ways, they were adrift in a foreign land. My friend, the church is no different today. We are strangers and pilgrims in this world. We are not at home here. We are not at home in the world system that is headed and um, directed, as it were, in many respects by 
the prince of darkness. We're not at home. And yet, when the church gathers, we have this assembly. We have this outpost of heaven on earth. A place where the people of God come to be equipped for the work of the ministry. Where the people of God come to worship God as we have been instructed in His Word. Where the people of God come to fellowship and to uh, encourage one another and pray with and for one another and set under the preached Word together. It's where God has established His people to worship Him corporately and collectively. But we are adrift in many ways today. The evangelical church of America looks almost nothing like it did a hundred years ago. I guarantee you that. Not that a hundred years ago they had everything perfectly right either. But I believe they had many things right that have fallen by the wayside unnecessarily. And there is a need for this, for God to do a gracious work of spiritual renewal in His church today. I wonder if you believe that. It is a great need. I quoted in the first sermon... David Wells from his book, God in the Wasteland. I want to read that quote again because it is so stinging. And I want you to hear it again. Quote, There was a time when American evangelicals prized and cultivated biblically chaste Christian thought. We prized it. And an incisive analysis of the culture from a perspective apart from that culture. But the past few decades have seen an erosion of the old distinctions. A gradual descent into the self-movement. A psychologizing of the faith. Think about the titles of sermons. Think about them on television and the radio. Think about how many sermons have a title that sounds exactly like this would be a psychology from a Christian perspective attempting to therapeutically help people in their problems. A psychologizing of the faith. And an adaption of Christian belief to a therapeutic culture. Distracted by the blandishments of modern culture. <laughs> I want to stop at like every half a sentence and talk about this quote. We're so distracted today. <laughs> there are thousands of things for you to do rather than read your Bible, pray, and make disciples who make disciples. In direct obedience to the commandment of Jesus Christ. There are thousands of distractions today. And the church, by and large, is a distracted church at best. Distracted by the blandishments of modern culture. We have lost our focus on transcendent biblical truth. We have been beguiled by 
the efficiency of our culture's technique. The sheer effectiveness of its strategies. And we have begun to play by the rules. We now blithely speak of marketing the gospel like any other commodity. Oblivious to the fact that such rhetoric betrays a vast intrusion of worldliness into the church. I could not agree with that statement more. The church is in dire need of revival and renewal today. And I thank God that I believe that we can look around and see it actually happening. Now, it's not like the Great Awakening in the uh, 1700s. (laughs) But it is nevertheless an awakening to a desire for biblical truth and biblical practice in the church. There is a revival of that happening today, and I'm thankful for it. So here's what I'm going to do. The first, I have two hat, two sections to this sermon. The first section is going to walk us very quickly through those sermons and what we learn. The second half of the sermon is where we get to the application. And the way that I'm going to do the application is by giving a statement with a therefore within the sentence that helps us to see how we can at least in one way apply it. Are you ready? Number one. The first sermon in chapters 1 and chapters 2 of the book of Ezra, we looked at God's faithfulness, God's sovereign faithfulness to stir. You remember that word? Stir. And in chapters 1 and 2, God, at His appointed time and through His power, He stirred a pagan king to send the people of Israel back to their homeland. He stirred some of the people of Israel to have a heart to go back to their homeland. He stirred the pagan king to provide everything that they would need for their journey and everything they would need when they got back to Jerusalem. This was nothing short of God's sovereign preparation, leading His people to deeper communion with Himself and to the right worship of Himself. Did you know this morning that there is a right way to worship God? People today often think that worship is something that is subjective. Subjective. That each individual has their own autonomy and authority to to determine how they worship God. And in, in one sense that may be partially true. But there's another way of looking at it, and that is through the lens of the Scripture. And when we look through the lens of the Word of God, the Bible, we understand that God actually tells us a lot about worship. God actually cares how we worship Him. For example, Jesus, talking to the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, says this to her in John chapter 4. says that, God is spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. In spirit and in truth. There is a right way to believe about God, 
and there is a right way to worship God. And if there is a right way, my friends, then there is certainly a wrong way. To the degree that we don't understand the true biblical God as He has revealed Himself in Scripture, to that degree we are not worshiping rightly. And so God is preparing in chapter 1 and 2 as He sends them back as God's sovereign power. That means that He's ruling in the heart of a pagan king. Certainly this is a God thing. God was doing all of this. And He was preparing them for the right worship of Himself. Secondly, the second sermon of chapter 3, we took all of chapter 3. And the main theme of that sermon was this. God acts, therefore His people act. God acts, therefore His people act to fulfill His purposes. So in that sermon of chapter 3, we saw how that they began the work by renewing the altar. Second, they, they reinstated the sacrifices and they rebuilt the foundation of the temple in chapter 3. This tells us today that God works. Just as it was God who stirred the king and stirred the people and made the provisions and gave them success in what they did. We must give God the, the proper glory and the proper credit when we look and see that the way that God does the work that He does and fulfills the purposes that He has in the world is not apart from His people, but in harmony and unison with their work. But we must get the horse in front and the cart behind. We must understand that it is God who acts and therefore, we act. Not the other way around. For example, a New Testament text that, that verifies and testifies to this reality is the book of Ephesians. If you would like to turn, you can. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Listen to the order of the way this text reads. Philippians 2, 12. Therefore, my beloved... As you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, and here it is, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So here's your working, your acting, your laboring to live out what you are in Christ. But I want you to notice what he says next. Because what he says next actually happens first. Because what he says next is the underpinning. It's the foundation for your work. You work because God has worked. The people of God act in harmony as God has revealed and worked to reveal himself in us. So he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. In verse 13, very important word. For, because, you work because, for, it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. You can't get any clearer than that. God works in you 
to will, to desire, to want to do, and God works through you to be able to do the work that will accomplish His good pleasure. So back to the second sermon, God acts, therefore God's people act to fulfill His purposes. And so we see them moving now to do stuff. They're, they're going back and they're rebuilding the altar. They're reinstating the sacrifices that reminded them of their sins. That reminded them that God is holy and He is also merciful. They reinstated these sacrifices that reminded them of their need for a substitute. Which would ultimately lead them to Christ. And they rebuilt the temple and laid the foundation And certainly in passing, we can consider this morning that it is important for us to lay a good, solid foundation to our homes, to our lives, and to our churches. It is important for you dads and husbands to take the responsibility to lay the foundation in your home that will stand as a good, sure footing for your wife and for your children. And your children's children. It is important that this happen. It is important that there is a solid foundation under our feet. If we were to work in harmony and unison and cooperation with God in His purpose for the local church. The foundation that is underneath all that we do here. Is an important part of the journey and of the work. Do you know what that foundation is? Do you think if I asked you that question individually, that we would have 10% to actually say the same foundation? There is a lot of work to be done. We must be patient, but we must act because God has acted to reveal His purposes in His Word. So the first one, God's sovereign faithfulness stirs. The, The second one, God acts and therefore His people act to fulfill His purposes. The third sermon was, had this theme, perseverance in opposition. That was in chapter 4. All of chapter 4, perseverance in opposition. They were opposed. The people of God were opposed. The building of the temple was opposed. There's trouble, trials, suffering, persecution, and difficulties Among the people of God and with the work of God. Now what we often want in ministry is for everything to go smoothly. I desire that. (laughs) I cannot lie. We don't want to experience inner brother, sister, group conflict and difficulty. We don't want to face opposition from outside in the world. And yet if we're honest... This morning we know that it must happen. It happens because we are sinners and we live in a world of sinners. And it happens, but it happens actually more importantly because God designs it. Nothing happens in your life apart from God. He doesn't fall asleep. He doesn't, his hand never slips off the wheel. He never loses the reins in the process of the world. He is in control. 
And so he has called us to persevere in the midst of opposition. There are three main temptations that we looked at. Number one was the temptation to compromise the pure devotion to God as he has revealed himself in Scripture. The pure devotion to God as he has revealed himself in Scripture. We know this morning that this is important because there are so many things, as we said earlier, that are there to distract us. So many things that could draw our attention away from God and the pure devotion to God and commitment to God that we see in the Word of God. For a church to grow, the absolute necessity is the Spirit of God. For a church to grow, the absolute necessity is the Word of God. For a church to grow, the absolute necessity is for us to conform ourselves to what the Word says, not try to make people happy. And so the temptation that they faced was a temptation to compromise the pure devotion to, the, to God as He revealed Himself in His Word, and we still face that same challenge today. Secondly, the temptation to, that, that interference would come into our relationship with God and we will be sidetracked from our main purpose. Thirdly, the temptation to succumb to political strategy. And I simply say to you along those lines, we must obey God rather than man. And that will get harder as we move forward. Spurgeon quote time, he says, never did the church so much prosper. I read this to you before, but it's good enough. Never did the church so much prosper and so truly thrive as when she was baptized in the blood. The ship of the church never sailed so gloriously along as when the bloody spray of her martyrs falls on her deck. We must suffer and we must die if we are ever to conquer this world for Christ. You say, wow, that doesn't sound like the the package that they sold me when I heard the gospel. Well, then you didn't hear the real gospel. Jesus said, if any man will come after me, let him take up his cross and deny himself and follow me. So we must persevere in opposition. Sermon number four has this as its main theme. God's gracious provision. Chapter five all the way into chapter six to verse 12. That sermon took up chapter five all the way to chapter six and verse 12. God's gracious provision. And here we saw a plethora of things that he provides. His prophets, his word specifically. And his word we notice gives rise to the work of the church Secondly, his word gives support to the workers and encourages them in their work. And his favor, which allows the work to succeed and produce fruit. Sermon number five was God's reforming providence. Chapter seven. We just took all of chapter seven to look at the providential hand of the Lord as he sent Ezra, the scribe and the priest of God. A man who was First of all, godly, and second of all, he was trained, skilled in the Word of God, and he was a trained teacher. He could help them to see clearly what they were supposed to be doing according to God's Word. And the Word of God, we noticed, was the reforming agent of the people of God. 
And he also provided not only Ezra, but in a general sense, as we saw, godly leadership, which is a gracious gift of God. Everything rises and falls on leadership. We must understand this. And just because many leaders have abused their authority and their position or their office does not mean that there is not biblical mandate, and the biblical gift of godly leadership. You cannot throw the entire concept of leadership out the window because someone or some many have abused their office. Therefore, I encourage you to encourage those who lead you in the word and unite with them for the purposes of God. And his glory. Number six. We found. The main theme to be. The principles for godly living. In chapter eight. Principles for godly living. Very quickly those principles were this. Forethought in planning. Unity and cooperation. Fasting and prayer. Stewardship. And gratitude and praise. Those are the principles that we saw that you can directly apply to your life and to our life together as a church. And number seven, this is the seventh and final sermon that we had last week. Trembling at the word of God, a call to repentance. There was a writer, I don't know who to attribute it to, but he said, and he's right, that all of the Christian life is one of repentance. You don't repent to get saved. And never repent again. But all of your life is one of repentance. Let me ask you. What have you repented of lately? And if you haven't repented of anything lately. Would you dare to say that all of your attitudes and all of your actions have been perfectly godly? All of the Christian life, my brothers and sisters, is one of repentance and faith. It's a constant realignment of our attitudes. It's a constant realignment of our actions to the Word of God and the character of God. Now that's section number one. Section two, here's where we get to the statements. Now here's the way these statements will read. If you noticed every one of those, did you notice that every one of those themes of those sermons puts God as ultimately and decisively in control? You notice that. It's going to be the same way with every one of these statements. Every one of these statements are going to start with God and then they're going to end with us. And the transition in that statement will be the word therefore in every one of these statements. Number one, and these are in order with all of the sermons. Number one, God prepares us for right worship and he alone sustains right worship worship. God prepares us and sustains us for right worship. This is a work of God. No more than the people of Israel could renew themselves to Jerusalem before the time. Will this church be renewed or you as an individual Christian be renewed? It is God who stirs. God prepares us for right worship and he alone sustains right worship. Therefore, We must be a dependent people 
of prayer. There's the application. If God is ultimately and decisively the one who can prepare your heart for true worship, who can change you and make you more into His likeness, then we should be a dependent, praying people. We should be a people that are willing every day of our lives and every moment of our lives to throw ourselves on the merciful hands of God and plead with Him to help us. We should acknowledge the barrenness of our souls toward His Word and the things of God. We should be willing to plead with Him for spiritual renewal in our lives. Prayer must be, so I added a second statement to this one, prayer must be the breathing of our spiritual lives both individually and collectively, corporately. Breathing. How long can you hold your breath? That's what I mean. Prayer should be like breathing to the child of God. Prayerlessness is, listen, prayerlessness comes from an attitude of unbelief. You don't pray because deep in your heart you don't believe that you need God. That hurts, doesn't it? But it's the reality of our situation. Because I can tell you that if you ever get in a serious, serious, serious situation that you know you have no control over, what will you do? Oh God! But every day as we live and we move and we act Very often we are doing that in the energy of the flesh because we haven't prayed as dependent people who understand that we need God to live and to move and to have our being. Number two. Statement number two. God designs His purposes to be accomplished by His power working in and through His people. God has designed... That he will accomplish his purposes to be accomplished by his power through his people. So how is he going to make disciples of the nations of the world? Not independent from the church, but through the church. Not independent from his disciples, but through the disciples. How can they call upon the one that they have never heard of? And how can they hear without a preacher? You and I must be faithful to preach the gospel. And you and I must be willing to open our lives up to Christians, other Christians, so that they, we can help them to grow in the likeness of Christ. We must act because God has acted. So God has designed His purposes to be accomplished by His power, working in and through His people. Therefore... Therefore, we must be actively seeking to labor to see the fulfillment of God's revealed purposes from His Word alone. This is the design of God. The call and the commission of the local church is is not, listen to me very carefully, the call of the local church is not simply to evangelize the world not the call of the church is to proclaim the gospel and disciple the saved 
And that means that each and every one of us who are part of the body of Christ, the family of God, the bride of Christ, we are personally responsible to Christ, the Lord, to be involved in this process of making disciples. That's what he's revealed in his word. That's the way he's going to accomplish it through his power. Number three, God designs opposition and trials to strengthen our convictions and faith in God. God designs them to strengthen our convictions and faith in God and to maximize his glory. Therefore, we must not grumble. <laughs> so there's application number one. The first time that when something goes wrong, the first thing I want to do is grumble, right? But if we know the first part of the statement, the therefore then transitions to the latter part of the statement, therefore we must not grumble, but rather suffer in a way that advances those same purposes. Namely, to strengthen and encourage and deepen our convictions in God and to glorify Him all the more. Number four, God graciously provides all that we need to live in a way that is pleasing to Him. He has graciously provided everything, everything. Look at me, you don't need anything else than what you have. Do you think you do? So do I. So often we think, well, if I had, if I had, if I had, if I just had. God has provided everything that we need to please Him and to accomplish His purposes. Therefore, we must be both content and faithful with what He provides. It's not because you don't have something that you're not more godly. <laughs> you have what you need. We have what we need. Number five. God continually reforms His people through His Word by His Spirit. God continually reforms His people through His Word by His Spirit. We saw that in the book of Ezra. If you study church history, you look at the Bible itself, you see that it is a constant cycle of renewal of the people of God. Constantly. God is always. And we don't understand the purposes of God to the full extent. We have to be willing to live with that mystery. We don't understand why He does what He does in the full extent of understanding. We don't. We just know that God is working. And whatever situation you find yourself in, you're to be in it content. And you're to be in it faithful. So God continually, it's a process of reform through His Word, by His Spirit. Therefore, we must fully rely upon the sufficiency of the Bible for both our faith, in other words, doctrine, and our practice, living. Did you know that this book contains all the... This book, right here, this book, you don't need anything else. This book contains everything you need to live in a way that pleases God and accomplish God's purposes for you in your life. In this book. You say, well, I was looking, you know, the other day. I was trying to find, you know, 
what to do in this particular temptation. I didn't say that it addressed every single solitary question you could ever ask. It doesn't say in this book what the person's name is that you're going to marry. Or what to name your children. Or what job you're going to work. Or what position you're going to have at that job. It doesn't say those things. Nevertheless, it does contain everything you need to live in a way that pleases God. And to live in a way that fulfills His purpose for your life. We must rely upon the sufficiency of the Bible alone for both faith, what we believe, and what we practice in our life. Number six, this is the final one because I just felt that we could combine a couple of them. Number six, God uses His Word to soften the heart and lead us to repentance and faith. There's the statement. God uses His Word. The Word of God is what is penetrating and active and alive. The Word. (laughs) Can you imagine today if you would go out and uh, you had a field and you like to grow corn or whatever. And you had a field and you went out and you took your plow and you plowed the field. And then you came through and you took a tiller and you tilled the ground. And uh, got all the rocks out of it and, and, and you just got it almost like sand prepared. You put the lime on it, whatever it needed to get the right soil content. But then you didn't put in the seed. Would that be smart? It's the Word of God, my friends, that gives life to the people of God. It is the Word of God that brings us to repentance and faith. What was it that led the people of Israel to repent in chapters 9 and 10? The Word of God. The last title was trembling at the Word of God. I took that right out of the text. It said, those who trembled at the Word of God came to Ezra and said, Let's do something. Let's do something about this. Don't (laughs) plow the field and, and fertilize the field and forget the seed. It is not you. It is the Word of God. God uses His Word to soften the heart and lead us to repentance and faith. Therefore, we must take His Word seriously And I have in mind in that so many different facets that I cannot get into. Let me name a couple. Number one, in our evangelism, we must preach God's Word. And number two, as children of God, we must take the Word of God in its entirety seriously. We must not embrace one Scripture over another. We must not make one Scripture and one attribute as revealed in Scripture to be elevated above any other that is mentioned in the Word of God concerning the nature and the character of God. We must not, uh, we must not use one passage of Scripture that gives us a command to do something in the church to the neglect of ten others. We must not look at sins and categorize them in our own minds and say, this one is an acceptable sin and this one is repulsively uh, bad. I'm, I'm not going to do that and I'm, I'm not going to like anybody else who does do that. 
We must take all of the Word of God seriously, meaning that if we tell the greatest lie, we take it serious enough that it breaks our heart to the point of repentance and confession and realigning our souls and our hearts and our actions and our attitudes to the Word of God. Because if you're honest with me and I'm honest with you, we can look around at the world and the landscape of the church today, and that's exactly what has happened. Certain sins have been elevated to the do not do list and other sins are dismissed and they're justified with human logic and human words when they should break our hearts. Pride and envy and jealousy and um, those sins of the heart are just as repulsive and damning as a person who steals and commits adultery and whatever. These things, sin is a breaking of the commandment of God. It dishonors God. And God holds all of us accountable for every single sin. And in order for that to be stinging to us, we must understand that He uses His Word. And therefore, the Word should be taken seriously. And let me finish the statement. Therefore, we must take His Word seriously with all readiness and prayer. To change our actions, which can be done apart from a right heart, by the way. In other words, you can look the part. That's outward conformity. That's morality. There will be many, many people in hell that are moral people. Don't be deceived. Let's take the Word of God seriously with all readiness to prayer. Readiness and prayer to change our actions. And our attitudes to conform to the Word of God. Because the Bible speaks about both of them. All of that came out of ten chapters. And we left out a lot, but I trust that we, did, we were able to touch on the main emphasis of the book. That God was renewing His people. That His people acted because God had acted in His gracious covenant-keeping love. And therefore, they rose up to the task at hand. And in the process, we see Him providing everything that they need. And that God speaks to us very clearly concerning how we are to rightly worship And how we are to rightly live. In both a way that pleases Him. And in a way that fulfills the purpose for our lives. Let me pray with you. Father, we do thank You for this book. We thank You that You have caused it to be written. And You have graciously preserved it throughout the years. So that we have today a historical document that is both accurate in what it conveys historically. But also, as you revealed to the Apostle Paul, the New Testament, those things which were written before were written for our good. Were written for our learning that we would have hope and persevere. As we see the way that you deal with individuals and nations and peoples. As we see what you expect and what you command. So we thank you for your holy word.
And we pray this morning that we would live lives of constant repentance. That is, that you would give us brokenness over the various shades of sin in our lives. That we may seek to live a life that is distinct from the world. That we would seek to live a life that brings honor to you. That we would seek to live a life of obedience to the known commands that you have given in your word. And so bless your people here in this place. There's one here today that came in this room without being a Christian. Maybe they're looking into this thing called Christianity. We just pray that you will soften their heart with your word. And bring them to that place of repentance and faith. We pray it in Jesus' name. And amen.